We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernane. Joining me for this episode is Michael Beale. Michael is the former academy coach at Chelsea and Liverpool. He's the former assistant coach at Sao Paulo in Brazil. And he's the new assistant coach alongside Steven Gerrard at Glasgow Rangers. I've been an admirer of Mix for a few years now. He's always put content out in the coaching community, first with Academy Soccer Coach, and then he's written books, sessions, podcasts, interviews. He puts so much out there and basically gives an awful lot back to the coaching community and challenges coaches with ideas and philosophies and exercises and all that good stuff. So really, really excited to have him on the podcast. Uh, Wanted to talk about his journey, what inspired him to think about the game the way he does, which you're going to find is a little bit different. Um, why he believes people come before practices. Uh, what he learnt in Brazil from the experience of working with top players. And then what he's learned from Chelsea and Liverpool, working with top players and top managers as well. Uh, and so, so much more. You're going to love his you versus yourself philosophy. And you're going to be inspired by how passionate he is about that there so an awful an awful lot of good stuff here so you're gonna love this one please continue to let everyone know about the podcast if you enjoy it please shoot a tweet out a little picture give it a like on the itunes page little five star rating always goes down well tell someone about it get the word out appreciate you listening appreciate you telling people thanks here's mick Mick, thanks very much for joining me this morning for the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Uh, great to uh, come on, Gary. It's absolutely a pleasure to come on, mate. You started off coaching, I read this last week, started off coaching in a church hall in Bromley with football to Sallow School. Um, what, what was the inspiration behind that that started you on your coaching pathway? Well, the thing is, I'd been a young professional and it hadn't quite worked out. I was a professional child and athletic and it was a time when we went back into the Premier League under Alan Kerbishley and it was hard to break through. I'd played a number of games in the in the second team, in the reserves, and I'd sort of fallen out of football. I'd spent a couple of trials both in England and over in Holland. I actually went to America to an NAIA college, Life University in Atlanta, Georgia, um, because I wasn't able to join an NCAA one because I'd been a professional in England. So I went over there. I played um, probably five or six months there in the first year. Um, Decided to come home at Christmas, got offered some trials to go back with professional teams here in England and sort of found myself at a loss. Nothing was really sticking. I'd always been really, really interested in coaching. And luckily enough, I had a little bit of money left over from my days as a professional player. And I ended up buying, you know, the franchise and going down the soccer school route. And I haven't looked back since. It was a huge um, passion almost straight away. Um, and although I was playing at a very, very good level, semi-professional, coaching soon just completely took off. And I really liked the football to Salau side of things because obviously fascinated by Brazilian football, but also about individual development and skill development. And it's something that's still a huge passion today. A career in, in coaching and playing sometimes it erodes the purity of the game for from both sides. How much of that from you in that hallway is still ingrained in your philosophy? Oh yeah, a, a huge amount. I always felt that you know this 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 saying of there's no I in team. I think it's the worst saying in any youth development sports uh, based or team based, should I say. I think it's a terrible term. So I would say there's 11 eyes in team in football and it's about improving each one. And I was really keen in trying to teach young kids something they didn't think they could do. Um, and obviously that was very much skill-based with futsal and football this allow. Um, 
And I just I just wanted to change the way that the game was taught to young kids. I really did. I wanted to go down a game-based route with lots of contact time with the ball. And I wanted to improve players' relationship with the ball. You know, I was a young boy that would sleep with my football boots on and my football the night before games and things like that. And I just feel that that's something that's been lost from the modern game. And it's still very, very much part of my development now, whether that be... Uh, at academy level or senior team level. It's all about the and also keeping them in a learning zone of getting better in all aspects. And, and, and that's something that I drive a lot. And I think I'm very, very fortunate. I think that's the way that football and development is going now with the greater education that coaches are getting as they go on courses. And I was very, very fortunate that that was my beliefs probably 18, 20 years ago. And that's kept me into, in good stead. One of your quotes in an interview, whenever just fast forward and then your development, your career in, in the move to Sao Paulo, you said that the job at Liverpool was a fantastic one, but day to day coaching was becoming easy. And I didn't feel I was being challenged enough in that role. I needed more to push my development forward. And that's that's an incredible level of self-awareness. But I wanted to talk to you about coaches and comfort zones. Do, do you feel that that coaches view consistency and order uh, almost as success when it's the chaos and the unknown that makes us grow? Or or is that just your personality? I believe in you versus yourself. And I think you have to impress yourself. I think that's what we're here to do. You're not here to impress anybody else. You're not here um, you know, for anybody else's to give you recognition. I think it's, a, it's, it's something inside you. And, and I have this model that I work in with the players that I work in, like you versus yourself. So where are you now? What's your identity of your know your self-awareness and then how do you manage that every single day uh, so what are your daily rituals and and so it was something that I was pushing very much with players but it's something that I just believe in myself I have to constantly be seeking a new challenge or a new curve or a new wave of learning and um, you know obviously you've seen that in some of the career moves that I've made um, you know firstly from Chelsea to Liverpool Liverpool to Sao Paulo that you're you know you're looking for another level you're looking for uh, another challenge, you're looking to put yourself in a position of learning because I think that's when people are at their best. You know, and I, I would encourage both coaches and players to go along on that you versus yourself model, but also try not to look sideways to compare. I think you can look sideways for inspiration, but, um, you know, I, I've worked with a number of young players that have broke through at the ages of 16, 17, and the other players in the academy, if they would have looked sideways to compare they might as well have not come to training the next day. But I think everyone's got to realise that your your own pathway is very, very unique to you. But it's, it's almost how you know where you want to go, but how do you build the stepping stones in your development between where you are now and ultimately where you want to end up. End up. And I would, I would basically term that as, as a challenge of you versus yourself. And you're saying that the relationship piece there is huge and... One of your one of your quotes is that it's more about the people than the practices. Is it a club's responsibility to build a support system with additional staff to accomplish this, or do you think coaches play the biggest role themselves? Well, I think it's bound to the environment and the and the culture that you create within the club. I, what I would say is, um, is, I would say that it's eighty percent of what you see on the pitch is your communication off of it and the way that people feel so I like to have a lot of informal conversations I like to have them conversations maybe over breakfast or lunch or dinner because I think that then you get past that five minutes where everyone tells you the sun's shining and everything in their life is great and after 10 or 15 minutes you start getting the truth out of someone and the conversation starts going somewhere so I try and encourage my staff when I was at Liverpool to, to take that upon themselves as well to um to, to oversee certain players. So we, you know, we would split the group, Gary, into maybe three or four sections from goalkeepers, midfielders, defenders, forwards and wide players and, and almost have a lieutenant that was in charge of them players. And then over the days of being there, maybe six days a week, maybe breakfast and lunch or lunch or dinner, what we would look to do is, is just scheduling an informal lunch where you sat down with that player, spoke to him about where they are now, where they want to go, what's their identity, and then what they're doing every single day to enhance that identity, so what's their daily uh, rituals, and then how does that fit in the team. I think with a lot of young players, um, 
finding their voice as a 17 or 18 year old is quite difficult. And even for some senior professionals, that's difficult. I think they tend to let their their ability or their talent on the pitch do the talking for them. And, and why that's good, I also think that that, in another side, it can be bad because, you know, not a lot of the kids are, are very good at, at speaking and actually being able to explain why they're a top player and, and what it is they're trying to achieve. And I think the first point of, of learning is admitting where you want to go and, and being quite bold about that, you know, not being shy about stating that you want to be the best or you're or you want to reach a first team maybe at a Liverpool or Chelsea, because then I think the staff can help you build the blocks to get to where you're going, you know? Getting the balance right between the supporting those players and then challenging those players. I always think of that clip from being Liverpool with Raheem Sterling and Brendan Rodgers when he's, you say steady yeah. to me once more. <laughs> uh, we, yeah. tend to, we tend to generalise coaches as good cop, bad cop. How do you balance that, that support and challenge personally with each individual? No, I certainly feel that you, you, there's standards of learning, there's standards of training. You've got to build them sort of the limits of both ends. I think obviously you, you, you want to be very, very approachable as a coach, but the player's always got to know it's not a friendship. You know, that you're there to be a guide, you're there to challenge them, you're there ultimately to help them get the best out of themselves. And, and therefore, I think that the closeness of your relationship will, will, will enable uh, a player to accept and to understand when you're not being critical, you're just actually giving the honest, you know, standing someone up in an honest way. I think um, it, it's huge. You know, I've been lucky enough to be around lots of top coaches just in, in virtue of the clubs that I've worked at. And the one common trait they all have is the people skills, you know, the, the, the ability to take care of human science, if you like. I think that our sport is in danger of becoming too sports sciencey and not not enough about the human and not enough about communication. I would certainly like to see coach education go that way. But I think ultimately the, the players have got a huge responsibility. I think when you're going through any model of work, the ownership's got to come back to the player um, and the crown's on their head. So one of the conversations we would have at the start of the season is, um, you know, the bad news is time flies, but the good news is you're the pilot. And I think young players or any level of player look at you at the start of the season and think that's just another quote. And then come Christmas, they're like, oh, maybe Mick's got a point there because the first half of the season went very quickly. And then at the end of the season, they completely understand that quote. And I think that's it. You're looking for players who can grow. You know, you're looking for players who who are willing to take ownership on a development. Now, not everyone's going to get that naturally. You might have to open one or two minds towards it. But the best the best players are generally, you know, very high output and very low maintenance, in, in, in my experience. When you're going through the recruitment process for those players, you know, again, one of your other interviews, you said that you look at a player and say, can I go on a, on a journey with you? Is there... Is there a process that you go through with finding out about family, or is what's the process with that? Well, yeah, I think that I think that's always something to consider, and at every age group as well. Whether you're recruiting for an academy and you're recruiting nines, tens, elevens in a professional setting um, that I've experienced, or you're bringing someone in that might be costing you, you know, a serious amount of money. I think you always want to sit down with that person and have a, a conversation firstly to see if they can fit. It's obviously they can, it's obvious that they can fit the environment they're currently in if it's a if it's a senior player because that's why you're interested in them. They've obviously played well in their current setting, but I always think it's important to sit down with a with a player and look them in the eyes and actually have a conversation with them about where they see themselves and where they're going. Um, I, I think that's that, that's hugely important, and I even think that's the same with young families as well because I think then you have to model parents' behaviours. And I think, I'm not sure talent is transferable is probably what I'm getting at. I see a lot of foreign players playing very well in one country or in one setting. And I see the uh, recruitment staff think, right, we can pick this guy up. And because we're paying him a hell of a lot of money, that he'll just come into our club and be that same player. So I always urge young players now to sort of, as they're going through and developing towards first team football, to work out what makes them them. So if I was to say, if you as a player, Gary, I would say, well, come on, Gary, what makes you you? So what do you need to do this week in training for confidence? What do you need to do for a challenge? What do you need to do in terms of your eating, your sleeping? What do you need to do to relax? 
What people do you like to have in your life that make you happy, comfortable? Because all of them things make you the person you are. And I think when you're very comfortable and happy in your personal life, I think that transfers to the pitch. And I think that is a big area of professional football now that we're spending millions and millions on bringing a player in. We spend very minimal on understanding that person and also understanding what makes them tick, what makes them comfortable. So we have a thing here at Liverpool when I was down the 23s coach that we can make the perfect training week by knowing what we need to make us feel good, but also what we need to make us um, improve. And then the game at the weekend is very unpredictable. But I, I certainly think that, again, people understanding what makes them tick, but more importantly, us as coaches going that extra mile just to find out a little bit about the player you're working with. So I would say try to understand the person before being understood. And um, and I think it's huge, especially with the types of money that are flying around now and the pressures um, of, of getting a decision right or getting a decision wrong or the pressures of, of, of performing well or not performing. I think that this human element needs to come into coaching because I actually think that's what coaching is. And on that feedback then, when we're looking at performance is that something that you believe is because th this sounds like a continuous the relationship with the player is a continuous conversation over time it's built it's managed it's improved yeah but then with performance yeah i think sorry Matt, i think that's what i meant by you know going on a journey with someone like you start by understanding i think with a young kid i don't think you do that so i think a kid pre under 14 i think you look at him and you think well, that boy's got a big ceiling, you know, he can go on and achieve quite a lot. And you're excited and energised by going on the journey with him. That that boy or girl, they excite you, you want to work with them, you feel you can improve them. And that's why I say about going on a journey at that age, because I think you've got to have as much motivation as anyone, because um, that kid will have ups and downs, and you, you've got to have a huge, you've got to be a huge inspirational figure in that in that player's life. I think when it gets older, what I mean by going on a journey is come on, sit down with that player and make that agreement of this is where you want to go. I'll help you. You've got to fill in the dots and you've got to take ownership. But I'm here for you. And you go on this fantastic journey together that's built basically on off that first conversation. Once you have that first conversation, I think then every other conversation is just a continuation. And I, and I see so many young coaches now getting bogged down with tactics and what Guardiola's doing or what Bielsa's doing or Simeone doing. And they're missing out what the big quality of them three coaches or the best coaches in the world is. And it's this ability to man-manage and, and build rapport with players. Yes, they're also fantastic coaches, but guess what? You can be a fantastic coach. If no one likes you, they won't play for you. So there's certain this thing about going on a journey and getting to know your players. And that's why I say sometimes you might have a huge squad and you might need to delegate and lean on staff. So it's an environment that you create around this self-learning of you versus yourself. It's, um, it, it, it's just something that I've learned as I've got on. Um, and then you, you, start, you start really delving into it and you start delving into different languages and cultures like I've done the last 18 months. It really is a fascinating journey to go on. I never thought coaching would take me this way. But what I've, I now believe, Gary, firmly is that a top coach in one sport could be a top coach in another, just based on some qualities. And then the knowledge of the game comes to the fore. But I think the most important thing is, you know, being able to communicate interact and inspire people i think that's huge is it is the fact that 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 build of the relationship that steady stream of of communication then makes thunderbolts like bad games or mishaps then easier to manage yeah because i think it's part of a continuous journey isn't it and i think um you know i think there's lots of lessons we can learn from individual sports in how to structure and manage these conversations the the, the beauty that we have as coaches we know it's not an individual sport so at the weekend of on match day we've got to merge that into the team sport but i do think that exactly what you say i think that if a player is very aware of themselves and very aware of the areas they'd like to improve or very aware of their strengths then they, they can almost self-audit and i suppose that's what i'm getting to here it's um it's much easier to build strong children than men broken adults i think it's a great quote that I heard recently, and I suppose that's what I'm getting at. As we're developing these players, or as players or 
and they can be adults or children that you're working with over a period of time, you're trying to make them more independent, more self-sufficient, more uh, more strong in terms of being able to audit themselves and ultimately to take ownership of their development. So, and, and I think, you know, the gains that you'd make as an under-9s coach in one year is no different to the sort of gains you'd want to make with adults in that either. You try to leave players in a better place than what you receive them. There's so many good role models now for coaches with in terms of tactics and systems that you can get a role model, like you said, Bielsa or Guardiola from TV or picking up a book. But coaches who specialise in relationships are, are a little harder to find because a lot of it goes on behind the scenes. So who influenced you the most in this regard? And I think I like Carlo Ancelotti a lot. I was lucky enough that when I was at Chelsea, I wasn't close to him by any stretch because I was working in the academy, but was very, very good academy in terms of having things drip thread down. And and, and the fact that I, I read his, his books and I read what people say about him, he's managed to work in a number of clubs and countries. He's worked with a number of high level, very, very high level players. And no one ever speaks ill of him as a person. You know, they always talk, first thing they talk about, don't talk about tactics or or anything like that, or fantastic practices. They talk about he may have a wife and children he's, he has, um, you know, that he's doing this for. He may be the biggest player in his country. He might be the biggest player in the club. And he always tries to make people aware of their responsibility to themselves. And again, it comes back to the, the same ideas that I have of this you versus yourself and, and always being the best you can be. Um, so, yeah, I, he, he is a big, big role model. I've been lucky. I've had some role models in youth development as well. I'd say Alex Inglethorpe has been fantastic for me, just driving my imagination for individual development, giving me a big amount of respect um, in allowing me to sort of try things and, and be creative in how I built the under-23 model at Liverpool when I was doing that. So I think he's been a huge inspiration to me as well, uh, more as a friend than, uh, you know, as a, than a boss because he gave me room to implement things. He had a great faith in me. So I think mentors can come in two different ways. You know, someone may be showing faith in you um, or someone being a bit of a guiding light and, and, and turning a few light bulbs on in your head as well. You mentioned Ancelotti there, so it's at the highest level in terms of a premiership manager, um, you've been around some unbelievable coaches, Mourinho, Rogers, Klopp, Ancelotti. Do they communicate in a different way than the youth coach with the players, um, closer to their personality, or is there a, a certain way you have to, to communicate at that level? No, I think, I think there's definitely a, a slightly different way in how you would communicate. I think... Um, I think obviously Brendan was someone that I'd seen a lot as a young coach and I felt that he always communicated very, very well. He has a, an accent very similar to yourself, Gary, and it, and it had a way with players in the way that he played on his accent, which I thought was outstanding when he was uh, an academy coach. And I think he's took a lot of them traits. Also at senior level, you're looking at, um, you know, if you're working at the level that I've been lucky enough to work at, they're already very, very good players. You know, they're international players. So they just need a little bit of clarity um, in terms of their tasks within the game, where young players need a lot of clarity among, uh, uh, on a range of subjects around their game, if that makes sense. They need, you know, clarity on how to train, how to sleep, what to eat, how to prepare, how to recover, clarity on technique, clarity on their identity, and what you find with senior players is a lot of that's been ticked off before they arrive to you, especially if you work in the big clubs that I've worked in. You know, they're an international, they have status. And now it's about that. I think then you have to have unbelievable personal skills to be able to manage that person and make him aware of the journey that he's been on and keeping him thirsty and hungry for the journey that he's going on now, you know, to take it to the next level. Because I think a lot of the senior players have already achieved their wildest dreams. So how do you keep these top internationals striving for more? It's a real curious, um, and it's something that you know I've found I've found fascinating the last two or three years. You know, going into the senior environment, that these players are already world famous stars. How do they continue to drive themselves? You know, and just talking to them has took my learning to a complete higher level. Yeah, let's talk about that that motivation because South American players are 
stereotyped as as hungrier playing for their families and maybe their futures too and and in the uk and definitely in the us we're now accused almost of giving as parents giving kids too much too soon in terms of comfort of living cars and all that there does that impl- does that affect motivation from comparing both environments um, what i would say about my time in brazil is that they need to be a player and what I find in other parts of the world and other players I've worked with, they want to be. And that, listen, I can't, you know, I'm not talking about the complete population. I'm talking about the majority. And what I saw in Brazil was they need to be a football player. It's an obsession. There's not the PlayStation culture or the Xbox culture because they're from poor backgrounds and they don't have that. You know, their favela is like our council estate. But the difference being that I came from a council state and I wasn't a football player, but I was able to go into another career that's, that's been highly rewarding and it's been able to enable me to live well. Where in Brazil, if you don't make it as a football player, you stay in the slums or the favela and you can't get out. You're only able to do, enables you only to do very low class uh, jobs or low-paying jobs. So to get out of your favela is huge for these uh, children, not only for them, but their whole family. And as they become more and more successful, their extended family as well to provide education, better housing and better prospects for their whole family. So there's a need, there's a look in the eye that I, I rarely see in England. I see it, I've seen it in quite a few boys before they make their debut. And then the beauty is how long or the trick is how long can you keep that look in their eye? I think every player that has made a debut, when I was lucky enough to be working with at Liverpool, just before they made their debut, they was in a lovely place. You know, their eyes were very on you. They were in a learning, uh, real good learning space. And that was why they were doing so well at that moment. They were hooked into the game. I saw that in a lot of children's eyes in Brazil. You know, they were willing to do whatever it took. So this thing about needs and wants is very, very interesting. And at the same time, I share you in a personal story. My parents have lived in Spain for 12 years and I've always wanted to learn Spanish as part of my coaching journey to aid me with my career. And although I took lessons over five years, I was very basic in my Spanish. And I only had about three weeks to learn Portuguese before I went to Brazil. And I tell you, in the 18 hours that I took, because I needed to learn Portuguese, a lot more stuck and when I got to Brazil I was able to communicate much better in Portuguese than I had with five years of trying to learn Spanish so this thing about needs and wants I, I saw it but in my own little journey of learning a language I actually was living it as well Gary so it was a real fascinating thing and I'm not saying every kid in England or in Europe doesn't have that need I would just say we have more that want to be a player. And what's the reason for wanting to, to be? Is it the car? Is it the house? Or is it winning the trophies? Is it the, you know, the adulation they're looking for? And, and, and what I saw in Brazil is, for the majority there, it's a pure need to be successful in life, to help all your family. So it's a more pure reason for being a player. And I just... You're talking about a complete different level of, of, of um, motivation to, to achieve, and, and that comes out in all forms, you know, in terms of work ethic, in terms of dedication, in terms of the hours actually playing and practicing the game. It's very, very hard for us to replicate that in other parts of the world. I think um, maybe certain parts of England still have that element, and, and certain, definitely the African nations have it, and across South America, but. Um, life's a little bit too comfortable in other areas of Europe, maybe. Just on, on another aspect that's pretty different in the spectrums, I feel in the US we've we've become reliant on coaching since kids are three or four. They couldn't kick a ball without a, a boy with a clipboard and a hat that said coach on his head, organising pitches. But in Brazil, players like to play with freedom and a little bit of liberation in their game. And they spend a lot of their youth playing without organisation, without linesmen, referees, etc. Do you think there's any connection between these two environments and the South Americans' ability to make decisions better or be more creative? Well, there's two, two elements to that. The first one is playfulness. And all of the top players that I've worked with that are from a different culture to me, whether um, 
European or South American, the ones I've been lucky enough to work with, they've always wanted to be playful, part of the session where they're just exploring with the ball. Now, I've grown up with um, train how you play. And that's okay if you want to play how you played last week. But if you want to improve and get better, you shouldn't train how you played last week. You should train to improve. Training should be purely there to improve you, in the, firstly, and then us as a group, secondly. So I think this thing about playfulness and having time with the ball to work on something that, you, that is very personal to you is huge. And they demanded that when I was in Brazil. That was a huge thing. And so that, that's nice because that comes back to my own thoughts, how I started out coaching, as we said previously, and also that I love the game approach. I want the ball rolling. I want maximised playing time. I want to try and use the distances and the environment that they are playing in at the weekend to develop them rather than a practice or a drill. I'm not really a big practice or drill man. Um, and secondly, if you think of the element of loans, so in, in England we use loans a lot for young players. Well, recently I did a study on the quarterfinals of the Champions League and only seven players out of the eight ties that started in, so you're looking there at, what, 88 to, to 90 players. Only seven made their debuts after their 20th birthday and three of them were goalkeepers and I think the other four had played in clubs where they had B teams. So they hadn't gone out on loan um, uh, they, they hadn't gone out alone and played, so what, it was when you made your actual first team debut, everybody was 19 and below, other than them seven players. And that's really interesting, because there's a statistic that says you have only have a 5% chance of playing in the Premier League if you make your debut um, after your 19th birthday. So if you make it in your 20th year, you only have a 5% chance of playing in the Premier League. So... What I'm leaning that back to is, it doesn't matter what level you make your debut at, but you have to be playing with men before your 20th birthday. So what I lean that back to is, then do you have to be playing with men or do you have to be playing in an environment where um, you're challenged and where there's there's people that are older than you? Because you think top young players now in an academy setting stay in the same dressing room year in, year out, play with the same players, and it's all very safe, you know, the same age. And you think of the element of street football where you learn. You learn because there was older players there. And you learn because there was bigger and stronger boys than you there. And so you learn decision-making and you, there was a lot of peer learning going on, which I think is being lost. And I'm just fascinated to see, is it the fact that you have to, to get... Because the, the reason I did that study was the year before, they said that every player that played in the semi-final of the Champions League had made their debut at 17. So as an academy coach working in Premier League clubs, I'm worried about that statistic. That statistic is a bit of an outlier for me. I'm worried about it. So I have to do a bit of investigation around it. And so I'm very, very curious that... Um, is it the fact that they go out and play that these boys go on? Or is it because they're just constantly challenged and is the environment that they're in with older senior players organising them, players to look up to, players that have become role models both in the good and the bad way because not everyone that's old in you will be a good role model. But is it the fact that you cut yourself away from this young academy team and put yourself in, a, in, a, in an environment of learning and, and it becomes very individual, so it becomes you versus yourself. So it all comes back to, you know, my little idea on, on why people develop. So if we go back to street football and the elements of that compared to now, more qualified coaching, no one said that more qualified coaching meant that we was going to have better players. That's a myth. More qualified coaches coaching all the time means less players are playing the game. And I think you think when me and you maybe grew up and, and, and the older generations, you'd play for your school district, county, you'd play for maybe an amateur club, maybe a professional club, you'd play in the street. So you was probably having 80, 90% of playfulness of playing the game. And maybe once or twice a week, you were lucky enough to go into a professional club and get a little bit of coaching, so a little bit of um, structure. And I think what we've changed to now is an environment where you've got probably 99% where it's always structure and 1% of playfulness and play and creativity and I just think that we really need to look at that so it's a bigger answer really than the elements of street football and the elements of structured football it's more like you know 
it, it's obvious if if in every t- every time you went to learn something, someone you know sat you down and instructed you every single path of the way. I'm not sure how much enjoyment you would have. And if you don't enjoy something, you won't learn and you won't have that unbelievable motivation to continue doing it for the amount of hours you need to to get to a world-class level, which is ultimately what we're trying to do with young players. So a little bit of a long answer, but you can see I'm very passionate about this subject, Gary, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated by the differences in the culture and then going to... In going to South America, like the, the kind of the last one I had for you was the scheduling and the sports science. You mentioned a little bit of that earlier. When in Brazil, you were playing every three days. So you're in a culture that players want to play and want to that playfulness. What role does sports science play? Do they, do they have to do they stop players getting on the field or do they just allow players to manage within their own loads? Oh, it's very interesting because we have something in the professional clubs called RPE, which is, you know, your perceived exertion, how difficult the session was. I know my thing with sports scientists on that is, well, if a boy's never played extra time, he's going to tell you that session's hard, but you don't know what hard is. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like you can tell I'm getting older now because it's a bit like the old schoolmaster. You don't know what hard work is. And I do worry about sports science limiting. Sports science, we have to get it right. If it's with young players, it's development sports science. If you're in a first-team environment, it's performance sports science. But in terms of getting better, you cannot limit training too soon. So I'm worried about sports science in a development setting with younger players. In terms of my time in Brazil, um, it's amazing what you can get out of your body when you have to. For sure, us playing a game every three days and flying four or five hours is not ideal, but I never saw the players complain about it. Um, I also saw in Brazil they have a huge cultural belief around leg weights, which frightened me because you think the amount of games we're playing um, and the amount of travelling we're doing, these players were obsessive with their leg weights every single day, um, doing much more than we would do in England. Um, to the stage where I wanted them to stop. But you have to understand, if it's cultural and it's something that their bodies become naturally atoned to over a period of time, you've got to worry about the the, the the negatives of taking something away. So there was certainly things that when I went to Brazil where you thought that was culture um, and you accepted that it was culture. And there was other things where you thought it was poor standards and it would be poor standards anywhere in the world. And therefore, you were less likely to accept them. What I would say in all of it is when you get to a first team level, um, any team in the world could be Barcelona, Real Madrid. You need your best players on the pitch on match day more than you need to train today. So I think your whole outlook on practices and, and sessions and time on the pitch changes a little bit. I think you do a lot of your tactical periodization early in the season and a lot of that sticks with you through the season, but always with the... The, the most important factor of being having your best players available for the maximum amount of time. And then I think each boy is individual. But I think it's fascinating how I saw with cultures in terms of, to give you an idea, in Brazil, with every meal they had ice cream. It's a national obsession ice cream. Now, going there as a coach that works here in England, I wanted to take the ice cream away. <laughs> but then when you start looking at their whole diet, you know, very much vegetables, salads and rice and lean meats um you're outside for many more hours a day so when a when a brazilian's pedometer or or you know step counters going it's, it's, it's breaking all the records compared to maybe an english player who goes home and sits on the sofa just virtue of the weather outside and living an outdoor lifestyle i also asked a brazilian national team doctor that was our doctor to show me the national team menu they also have ice cream of every meal not so it's just a complete different thing around culture. And you've got to worry about that small scoop of ice cream. It's a cultural thing. Do you change it? Because in England, we wouldn't do it. But their whole, the whole culture is different. Um, and that's fascinating when you think of the makeup of some of the best teams in the world, Gary. You know, with players from all around the world. How do you manage all of that? And that's why I always come back to this get to know the person and what makes them tick and get them to know. Now, within that, some things, as I said, will be culture and some will be poor standards. And I think then you can change minds, but you've got to understand the person first. And going back to sports science, well, 
sports science there was just every single day trying to help players recover to prepare for the next game. And it was very much a seven-day schedule because there was only ever 11 on the pitch for the majority of the time. So you may have another 12 or 15 players in your squad that while one group's doing recovery, the other group's training. So I don't believe now that football you can have, say, right, Wednesday's our day off or Tuesday's our day off. I think it's a it's a very much a hybrid programme with there always being a reason to train somebody on any given day, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because, um, and I think that that's, that's another thing for coaches to realise and I think for certainly ex-players to realise because I don't think they realise that when they jump out of playing and go into coaching at a professional level. I don't think they understand that. Last couple of questions for you. Does does on, on coach education does coach education lead us away from individuals or are we doing it ourselves by simply thinking that elite coaching involves tactics and systems? Um I think that I think when it gets to performance level, I think you've got to have some real clarity around how you want the team to move on the pitch at the weekends. But I think you know, we could all follow Guardiola's manual this year for Man City, but if you take out De Bruyne, Silva, Aguero, you ain't going to get the same success. So I would say it's definitely a merging of the two things. I think um, what you'll find as well, it's not as complex as people make out. I think, you know, you as a coach, you might need to know the complexity of what you want, but how you communicate it to the players has to be in the most basic and simple form. They don't need to understand it at the level that you understand it at, in my opinion. It must never, ever stifle individual creativity and development because I think that, you know, if that happens and we take away the spontaneous ability of someone like Lionel Messi or someone in the Premier League like Kevin De Bruyne this year or Eden Hazard, then the game's going to become a very, very mundane game. Um, I think what we need to find in coach development is that there's many different types of coaches. You could be a manager, you could be a leader, you can be a tactician, you can be a technical coach, um, you know, you can be a youth developer. And I think you can cross across maybe three or four of them, but you need to find out what really drives and develops you as a, uh, as a coach and where your strength is and where it lies. And I think getting in line with that quite early will help you maximise where you're going as a coach. I think... Um, it's the individuals that make the game come alive. We, we, we tend to not... We can all name millions and millions of, of, of brilliant individual players and less so teams. You know, it might be that we say, you know, the Dutch team of total football or, um, you know, the German team or the Spanish team. But we always talk about the players within that team. So I always think that's a good insight in is it a, is it a game of tactics or is it a game of players? I think players make your tactics. I think, you know, I see too many coaches trying to get players playing like Barcelona without players having unbelievable technique like them. I also believe that, um, you know, we talk. there's a lot of talk now about positional play. Well, positional play was created because you had a number of outstanding individuals. So you position them, circulate the ball, and then when they got the ball 1v1, they was able to outplay. What I see now is people doing positional play with 12, 13, 14-year-old children that still are struggling to receive the ball. Um, And so, yeah, in in the tactical versus player debate, I would say that that it's obviously naturally a mix of both, but it's really hard to play without good players, Gary, as we've all found out at some stage in our coaching careers, I'm, I'm sure. Another another great fact I learned from you when you started working at Chelsea, it was putting out the cones for the U sixes and U sevens. Uh, do you yeah. feel Do you feel that coaches today want to want to rise through the ranks too quickly and then pass up, you know, great opportunities to learn? Yeah, I, the only thing. Yeah, I, I do, I do, but I don't want to come across as the old ogre there because you know <laughs> um, I've been I've been that young coach and. Um, you know, I had a drive and ambition, and I, was, I wouldn't say I was ignorant, but I had a very much drive and ambition. I explored, I had a huge amount of energy and motivation to learn and develop in the sport. And at the time, maybe I'd, as a younger coach, rubbed up, rubbed off an older coach in the wrong way because of that drive and ambition. Uh, I think what young kids are, uh, are yearning for and young coaches are yearning for is opportunity. 
I think they're yearning for mentors, but really genuine, honest mentors. Not do it this way, because this, you know, genuinely people that will help guide them on their journey and help to guide them and structure how they um, want to see the game played and want to coach it. So I think that's important. I think there's people in the game that could do a lot more to open up opportunities for young coaches to come and view. Um, and that's something that I've, I'm, you know, I have almost not a complete open door policy at Liverpool because it has to be at the right time. But I'm very genuine in my time for young coaches. And I would really reach out to other people that are doing doing well in, and working in good clubs to do that for young coaches as well because you're openly enhancing the whole game. You know, you're not just, you know, you're just, there's no real secrets in our game. Mm. Uh, there's ideas we can take. I'll give you an insight into this. I was watching an under-11 game last night um, at Liverpool Academy versus Berry, And I don't know the Berry coach because I was standing up on the balcony watching the game, having a cup of tea, and they were warming up before the game. And the Berry coach has given me a fantastic drill there. So this is a game where there's ideas in all different places, Gary, isn't there? Do you know what I mean? And just... You know, I'm fascinated to talk about the game with people at all different levels, just to understand, have they seen something I haven't seen? Um, is there an experience I can give to them or an idea I can give to them that will help kick, kick them along? And um, no, I, I did put the cones out for the under sixes. And funny enough, for the last six or seven months, I've been doing something quite similar as I've been overseeing the coaches in the 5 to 11 age group at Liverpool and not wanting to steal any of the limelight of them coaches. I wanted to stand back and mentor them, which from time to time has meant me being, I've been the cone boy, you know, and I've been picking up quite a lot of cones this year. So it feels like I've almost gone full circle in the last few months. But uh, I just think at every step, there's been one or two people that have given me the light bulb moments and opened a door open for me. And then what you do, you step through it and you try to open another door for someone else. I think that's really, really important. That, that, that as we get older, we almost become the people that open the door and become mentors and, and we allow coaches to be who they are. I have to say that, um, you know, that, that's where coach education have to go. I think for a lot of the time, you know, back home here in England, coach education was a bit one size fits all. And I thought we were turning out clones. Mm. And it's, it's nice to see now that they're allow, allowing coaches to sort of have their own beliefs because it is the variety and it is the opinions that make the game what it is, isn't it? It's like, you know, if we all played the same system in the same way, the game would become very, very boring. And I do see that a little bit in the academy system in England. If you've seen one game, you've seen a thousand because no one's really trying anything different. You know, everyone's playing the same way and everyone's trying to do the same thing. And then I think the game lacks its creativity and, 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 and the unpredictable nature of it. And I've got to say, we've seen that recently in a complete other way with this VAR thing. I think everyone thought it was going to be a great idea. Then in practice, everyone's gone, oh, wow, take it away because it's took away the drama of the game. And I suppose in another way, what I'm saying is if we don't get coach education right in terms of, no, this is the way it's got to be done to the, the way I'd like to see it be is, go on, this is how you see the game being played. Why? And because the next generation see life in a different way to us, they'll be the ones that create the next level of football, not us, unfortunately. You know, when we're old and grey, we'll be watching teams play the next level of football. So we've got to label the youth to have their impact on it. And I think coach education plays a big part in, in allowing people to be creative and not, not making a one-size-fits-all. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Mick, thanks so much for your time today and... and and everything you do as well in the coaching community, you're always willing to give so much back to coaches at every level. And I know there's a, I'm speaking on behalf of a lot of people who are thankful for, for everything you do. So really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time today. Absolutely brilliant insight. No, thanks very much, Gary. A pleasure. I'd, I'd love to come on again and uh, maybe be a bit lighthearted next time. Some <laughs> tough, tougher answers to your questions there, mate. But you can see that, um, I'm passionate about where our game's going. I'm, I'm living it 24/7, as I know you are. So it's a it's a real pleasure to come on, and uh, and, and hopefully there's one or two things in there people can take away. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Thanks, Mick, and all the best. And we'll we'll hopefully speak to you soon. Cheers, Gary. Take Cheers. care, mate. All the best. Thanks, Mick. Thanks so much there to Mick for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I could listen to him talk all day about 
his philosophy, how passionate he is about it, how much he believes in his work and he believes in the coaching community, what we should be doing, where we should be moving. He questions coach education, he challenges where where the game has taken us almost today in some form of coaching community. It's it's not taken us towards making players better in some regards, it's taken us towards uh, emulating people that we don't really know enough about and I completely agree with him there. Uh, I was fortunate enough to watch him work. I visited him at Liverpool in January 2014 and two things stood out for me. First of all, uh, after the I watched the training session and he spent longer explaining why he was doing the session and what his philosophy was. We spent about the session was about an hour and a half long. He spent about two hours giving me his why that he was doing everything and what he stood for and what his philosophy was. And then it was lunchtime. We went up to lunch and he, he almost apologized before we started. He said, listen, Gary, there's your food, but I'm not going to be able to spend enough time with you here for the next 45 minutes. I'm going to be drifting around. And are you going to be okay on your own? And of course, I had Sky Sports in front of me, so I was fine. But I watched him and he just drifted around from group, little two, three people to a group or or individual players. And he had a clear agenda with each player and it's just how intentional he was to see where he was going next and, and what he was doing. And it almost appeared that he came in there with a plan. Uh, and if that, how, if that is how he approached every lunchtime, then I can imagine the relationships he has with his players. He, you know, he would have been, they would have just loved working with him every day because the session, the intensity of the session, the energy of the session was just unbelievable. So I went w- expecting to watch, uh, you know, make work a training session. And what I got was was a workshop in coaching philosophy, uh, putting that into action, and then just communication, formal and informal. So it was unbelievable, uh, and I had a great day. So I I would encourage everyone. He's if you don't follow him on on Twitter, follow him, read his books. You know, after you listen to this podcast, you know, search, get more podcasts on him, and and there's an awful lot of good stuff. Um, saw my personal football coach has got two two great interviews with him as well. So, um, yeah, follow Mick and, and his work and read his books and and uh, and you you won't be let down. He just comes out with with great stuff and uh, and like I said, what what inspires me about him is his his energy drive and his, his desire to give back to the coaching community all the time is absolutely brilliant. So, uh, I can't thank him enough for that there. He's, he's now, this was just before he took the Rangers job. So he's going to be, uh, he's going to be busy now and I'm really excited to see how he does there and wish him all the best. So thanks so much to make. Thank you for listening. Uh, I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And, and if you did, please give it a rating on the iTunes page, a little five star rating always helps. And before you shoot off for the day, please just drop us a tweet or, uh, at Gary Kernine on Twitter, at Gary Kernine on Instagram, uh, Gary at modernsoccercoach.com. Always, always interested to hear what you enjoyed most about it and, and always appreciate you listening and supporting the podcast as well. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, Head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.